He's already revealed that in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you remember what Drew spoke about last week, or yeah, last week, um, he spoke about the fact that a creation itself, the heavens, and then we zoom into this little speck of dust in the heavens called earth. Now, we uh, human beings tend to think that from birth that the world revolves around us. And if you don't think that, look at a baby's nursery and look how people change their lives when they have their first child. Everything begins to, even though we tell them, the world doesn't revolve around you, son. From birth, you've been telling them that it does. And so with that being said, God doesn't start by saying, I created man. He starts with creating the heavens. And then he zooms in closer and he shows this this little speck of dust called earth. And then out of the dust of the earth, he forms you and I. That's kind of his standard operating procedure. He takes something very, very minuscule and tiny and he makes much of it to glorify himself. And if you think about the space dust that's out there, you think about the expanse of the universe, think about what Isaiah says, which is that God created the heavens and the earth and that he measures the heavens, the galaxies, with a span. And the word span means the, the distance from your pinky to your thumb. And so if the word span for God's hand, if, you, if he has hands, we give him this anthropomorphism, this personal identity, this something we can understand, this distance between his pinky and his thumb is a span. That's the universe, the galaxies, all that we know and all that's still being discovered by space people that are going out there with their rockets. It's that it's way bigger than we originally thought. And if God created that and that yet he considers us a speck of dust on a speck of dust in that galaxy, wow, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you consider him? And so in six literal days is what I hold to when I study the book of Genesis and I see the, the word for day there, it means a 24-hour period. But in Genesis 1.1, if you believe that God created the heavens and the earth, then believing that he created all of existence, the context in which we live in six 24-hour periods is not really that difficult. Because when he builds something, he speaks it into existence the word of God. And so we see that in those six literal days, he creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the light, uh, the atmosphere surrounding earth, land, sea, plants, their seeds, their kinds of plants. He creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. And by the way, those things are all for the sake of and the benefit of those that live on the earth. He creates the sea and the air creatures, birds, and he multiplies them. He gives them the command to be fruitful and multiply, and he uh, gives them in their kind. So he not only creates the chicken, but then he gives it the ability to multiply by laying eggs. Now, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I would say the chicken, because then in the chicken is the potential for the egg. And so God didn't have to create an egg and hatch it. He created a fully formed animal, just like he did for man. He didn't create an embryo. He created a man, already mature, able to multiply and master and manage. And then we have the land creatures. He gave them the ability to multiply, the potential. And then he made them after their kinds. But then on top of that, the fulfillment of all of that, he says, now I'm going to create mankind. And he created man in the image of God. And uh, Drew talked about that last week. Now, we can get into what that means, the image of God. Does that mean that God looks like us or that better off so we look like him? Uh, I've heard many people say, man, your dad looks like you. And while that is the case, and I wouldn't always like to admit that, the reality is, is I actually look like him. He doesn't look like me. He was there before me. And so if there's any resemblance to you and I, and, and it looks like our creator, it's because we came from him. He made us in his image. We're not, he's not made in our image. And that's the problem. 
that man tends to worship creation rather than the creator because we form gods in our image. And yet God formed us in his image. And so we are to reflect who he is, what he's like. And so, but another thing that I want to point out is this is really kind of one of the first times that the Trinity is mentioned because we are created in the image of God and God is a triunity. He's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Father is this personality. The Spirit is the, the power, the spiritual life. And then the Son is God becoming flesh. And so in that same way, we have a physical body. And, and it was formed out of dust. And then at the same time, the soul is what we might call the personality. You know, you, you that have children, you know that each child that you've had, even though they grow up in the same circumstances, they have essentially the same genes, they're totally different because they were created personally and they were created individually. And so they're different than one another. And at the same time, that personality isn't necessarily our spirit. And so the spirit is what God makes alive when we, we become born again. Unless a person is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. We are born because of the fall. We'll see next week in chapter 3, we're born spiritually dead. And so we can be born physically alive and yet spiritually dead, which is confusing, but it's, it's how God created us. And so all that to say, God gave them commands. He commanded them to multiply he said, be fruitful and multiply. So some people do that, some people don't, but God has commanded the godly to multiply. That's part of us being obedient to our creator. And then he says, master and manage creation and all the living things within it. So it's a good idea to be a good steward over what God's given us to be stewards over. The animals of the sea, the animals of the air, the, the land creatures. And so in chapter two, we move on and he's essentially telling the same thing. Here's the argument of some of those that would refute Genesis being a literal book. They would say chapter one and two disagree with one another. But what we have in chapter one is a macro level view. Picture, if you will, you go up into the space station and you're looking down and you're watching creation happen. Chapter one is what it would look like. Essentially, creation comes from being null and void. Earth is there, and yet there's not a whole lot going on. There's no order. There's no laws. There's no living creatures. And so God speaks into existence all of those things to work together. And then in chapter 2, he zooms in and he says, this is more specifically what it looked like. So it's the retelling of the same thing that happened in chapter 1, but with more detail. So in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, after the sixth day... And in chapter 30, uh, 1, verse 31, I want to point this out. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. Think about this. Every single one of the days of creation, he says, and it was good. God saw it, and he said it was good. It's like quality control. He saw it, he recognized it was good, and this tells me he's communicating to us that at the beginning... In verse 31, it was very good. When it was all completed, he looked at it and he said, it's very good. Now, some of you might be able to relate to this because you like to mow your grass. And when you get done mowing your grass, you like to get a little glass of sweet tea, maybe some lemonade, maybe some ice water, and you sit there and you kick back. We're, we're created in the image of God, right? And so in like manner, we will sit there on our porch and go, that looks awesome. Man, look at the lines. Some of you got the little thing where you like make it, you know, form one way or the other so that it's got, you know, like, like the suede couch where you take your hand across it and it makes the grass lay down or the suede. And you look at it and you go, man, it looks awesome. You enjoy it. So God looked at what he had made and he enjoyed it. And he says to us, it was very good. But I want to highlight a word in that sentence was. Now, for you English majors, you know that that is past tense, but we could very easily read over that and go, yeah, okay, it was very good. That's when he wrote it. But what I want to point out is it was very good. 
And then God created us in the midst of that creation. He said, by the way, that Adam was very good. But what happens in chapter 3 makes it not so good. Our rebellion, our rejecting God's command, our worshiping creation instead of worshiping God in the garden. And so today we'll see that a little bit more clearly. So God finishes creation in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Verse 4 through 6, we're going to see the original water cycle. So for you that are scientific and you really like the enjoyment of the scientific process and the water cycle and you're geeks like that, like me, you might enjoy this. Verse 7 Man formed God, excuse me, man was formed of dust and made alive by the breath of God placed into him. That's why we sang that song this morning. You know, it's your breath in our lungs. It's not just that he supplied the breath, but if you're alive in Christ, he has breathed into you the pneuma, the, the wind of the spirit that's made us alive, just like Adam. Verse 8 through 14, habitat is created for man. Verse 15 through 20, man is in the garden, but he has no help, no helper. Verse 21 through 25, God forms woman out of man. And so verse 1 through 3, we have this. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Job well done. Thank you, Lord. Verse 2, and on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his labor, which God had created and made. So, verse 1 through 3, God completes the work that he started. By the way, God is always faithful to complete. The he doesn't leave tasks unfinished. He's working on you and I. He will complete the work that he starts. He doesn't start a task and go, well, ran out of funds, or I'm not interested anymore. He completes every work that he starts. Number two, he ends his labor. He stops working. Now, think about this. The way that God works, the way that he creates, he doesn't toil and sweat to the point of exhaustion, so he needs a break. He, he speaks things into existence. So all it says is that he was done, and then he stopped. He completed his work, and he stopped working. And I love this because uh, I have a tendency to complete my work and go on to something else. But what God does is he sets a principle. Uh, he rests. Now, in, in the Psalms, it actually says that God doesn't get tired or sleep or slumber. Psalm 121. But what I want to point out here is when he ceases speaking things and creating them, he blesses. Instead of God speaking things into existence on the seventh day, it says he stops working and he blesses the day. Now the word there, blessing, can also be found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 12, where we have the Beatitudes. Blessed are you, poor in spirit. Blessed are you when people persecute you and all these things that don't really make sense to the flesh. But there's a blessing attached to the seventh day, and the word there for blessing actually means, oh, how happy. It's a happiness that is circumstantial. Now, in the Christian life, many times we try to point people away from happiness because happiness is based on my circumstances. Joy, however, is something you can have even when circumstantially things aren't that great. Joy is something that's had, and it's actually a fruit of the Spirit in the midst of trial. You can have joy even though things aren't what you would like them to be. But here we have God blessing the seventh day. There's a blessing attached to it. And the blessing is that the circumstances are perfect. They are ideal. They're everything they, they were ever meant to be. And so God ceases from working he enjoys this day of no labor, and then he sanctifies the day. The word there, sanctify, means that he sets it apart for a specific purpose. The seventh day of this particular week we're talking about is a day where nothing has to be accomplished. And if you are like me, and you live your life on email trails and to-do lists 
and projects and things that you're not content with that need to be finished, there's never any relief from those things, is there? It, the, by the way, if you're living in a house right now, no, your projects aren't complete, and they won't be until the day you sell the house. If you're like my family, we sold the house I grew up in, and God, excuse me, I say God, Dad put the trim in the week before we sold the house. We finally replaced the ugly drab carpet when we sold the house. We finally completed working on it because we left. Not because we wouldn't have found more things to do, but because we, we couldn't work on it. We turned over to someone else. And so all that to say, our labors are never really finished here on earth. But what I want to point out is that God decided to stop laboring. He decided to be finished. And on that day, he enjoyed what he had labored for. We don't do that. I would say, by and large, we take the day of rest that we're going to look at here shortly as a suggestion instead of a commandment. Uh, God gave 10 commandments. We always talk about the 10 commandments. They won't let the 10 commandments be on the courthouse lawn. Well, it doesn't matter where it's posted. God gave them to be a blessing, not to be a curse. But he sanctifies the seventh day. And I want to turn to you. Uh, have you turn with me to Matthew chapter 11? Because on Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said something to his disciples and to those who were listening. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, the idea is humble, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, we just saw this. On the seventh day, he rested. He set, the part, set apart this day, and he blessed it, and he ceased from his labor. Well, what's interesting is if you turn to Exodus chapter 16, there's another time. And by the way, this is before the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus 20. God's setting a precedent. He's saying, on the seventh day, I want you to rest. Why? For the same reason that your car manufacturer says, after this many thousand miles, you need to change your oil. You shut the thing off, let it cool off, drain the oil out of it, and replace it. It's called maintenance. So God knew that we would labor to the point of exhaustion, and we would never take rest. And so God said, I'm going to rest, and I'm going to set an example. God leads by example. And in Exodus chapter 16, in verse 23, the people of God, the Israelites, have been taken out of the land of slavery. He's taken them into the wilderness. They have no food. They've been out there by themselves. He's led them out there, and he provides food for them. Every morning, he drops this dust, this coriander seed mixed, like looks like snow on the ground, and they call it manna. What is it? And every day, for six days, they're to gather enough for the day. But on the sixth day, they are to gather enough for two days. Now, they ignore this command, and the first thing they do is they gather enough for as much as they can get because they want to have enough for two to three days. But what happens is whatever they keep over the first day, they get up the next morning, they're like, hey, let's cook up some manna. And as they're getting ready to cook it, they realize that it's covered in worms and it's rotted. It's become a stench. And so God tells them, I told you to get enough for the day. Just enough for today. Tomorrow has enough worries for its own, you might say. But then on the sixth day, he says, I want you to gather enough for two days because on the seventh day, you're not going to labor. You're going to have food. I'm like, wait a minute. It rots if we keep it overnight. Well, imagine this. God keeps it. On the sixth day, they get enough for two days. They get up the next morning, and it didn't rot because they obeyed. God's going to give them what they need when they need it, and that's not just food. It's also rest. And so in Exodus chapter 16, verse 23, then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow's a Sabbath rest a holy Sabbath to the Lord. 
Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. And Moses said, eat that today for today is a rest day. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. And it happened, imagine this, God told them to take a stinking vacation once a week, and they said, meh. So verse 27, it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they didn't find any. They didn't find any. Imagine that. God told them to do something, they disobeyed, and they wasted their efforts. But also notice that in order to get rest on the seventh day, they had to work extra on the sixth diligently work to enter into rest. If you are a person that is not entering into rest at least one day a week, it is your own fault because God is providing for you to do that. Now, it might not be on the the day. You know, like, really, Jesus is our rest in any day. Every day is a Sabbath. We don't have to work to save ourselves. This is a blessing. But I would encourage you, not because you have to, but because it's good for you, find a day to not work. Find a day to stop laboring. Why? Because on that day, it will take faith to do this, by the way, and it will take work to do this. But if you will do it, on that day, you will be able to sit down and enjoy what you've been working for all week. You can look at your fresh cut grass that you cut on Saturday instead, or Friday, or whatever the day is. And then on top of that, you'll be enjoying the day and then on that day, while you're tempted all day long, you'll, you'll be jonesing to do something, to produce something. What you'll find out is that you're, if you sit still, the world keeps spinning. It will keep going. It's going to be okay. God is God, and I am not. That's what the Israelites found out. That's what Adam and Eve are going to find out. That's what you and I are supposed to diligently work to enter into. And I would tell you that if you don't take a day of rest. What you'll find out is you'll start spinning out, start stressing out, you'll start going off on your kids, you'll, you'll feel frazzled all the time, and it is your own fault because you did not simply obey a commandment from God. So all that to say, easy for me to say, right? I only work one day a week. I'm a pastor, right? but I could be tempted in the same way. And so we need to enter into this rest. Not only that, but it's a commandment. It's one of the top 10. Exodus chapter 20, verse eight. I'm gonna turn there just so we're sure to cover this. But he says there, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How do we gotta keep it holy? Observe it. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, huh, we're reading this today, right? And the sea, and that is all that is in them, and he rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so, Back to Genesis chapter 2, and we'll move on. He says, This is the history, the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. Now hearken forward to Genesis chapter 11. It says that the Lord God caused it to rain. Now, you can dig into this on your own time, and I won't spend a ton of time on it today, but before the Genesis flood, which was a real flood, these are real events that took place. This is not allegorical. This is not poetic. This is the history of the world leading to a people that are going... This is all tying a people of God to the God of creation. But in this, we find out that it didn't rain before the flood account. It says here, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But instead, a mist went up from the earth 
and watered the whole face of the ground. So you think that we came up with the sprinkler system at our businesses and at our homes? That's actually how God used to water the entire face of the earth. Instead of the water cycle, God watered the earth kind of like this. Um, we have what we look at, the rain cycle. I have a picture there for you. Transpiration from the ground, condensation, it becomes clouds, and then it falls when all the right conditions are met. There's the accumulation in the sea, there's the, the return of the water to the, the water cycle, and then it comes back and it's rained on the ground. But before that, we had sprinkler systems. God made sprinkler systems, and it was well watered, and the oxygen content was better. And, and there are many scientific reasons we believe that, that, that before the Genesis flood, there was actually a, a vapor canopy described in Genesis 1 where uh, UV rays weren't allowed in. And so animals and bugs, and we have all these crustaceans and things that we have in the fossil record that show that butterflies were like three or four times as big because of the oxygen content. And people lived longer. Many believe because God said it, but also because scientifically there was more oxygen in the atmosphere. It was a better thing to grow in. And so uh, previously, water came out from the face of the earth. At the start, a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And so all that to say, um, things have changed because of the fall. So then verse 7, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so God is the life giver, and he formed man from the dust, and to dust we shall return, Psalm 103. So formed from dust, but also not just dust, because earth was formed into a creature, but creature was still at that point essentially what we would make an art class, a sculpture. No, no ability to breathe, no life. But God, in his plan, breathes into the nostrils of Adam, and he makes him alive. And man did not create God, but God created man. Without God, we are dust on the ground with no potential. But with God, we have the breath of life. And so Psalm 103, and I'm going to turn there real quick, because the psalmist was apparently a lot more of a believer uh, than science. And I love science, by the way. Science many times proves what the Bible says centuries after the Bible says it. One of the things I love that it proves is that the earth was round. For years, scientists believed that it was flat. But Psalm 103, in verse 11, says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is God's mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He knows what our frame's made out of. He remembers that we are dust. Why does he remember that? Because he was there at inception. He was there when his, our frames were made. He was at the drawing board. He was there when we were manufactured, if you want to call it that. But it doesn't stop there. He then gives us the breath. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God was there at the beginning during creation and, and was hovering over the void and the null. He was the one that gave life to the earth. But then Adam's given life in verse 7. And what's interesting about this is that Adam was given life but then when the church is birthed, in John chapter 20, verse 19 through 23, it says that Jesus, speaking to his disciples, he's just been risen from the dead. He shows up in a prayer room where they are in the upper room praying because they're in fear for their life because the, the man that they've been dedicating their time to, the man that they've been publicly seen with, the man that they've been identified with, he's been crucified for blasphemy. And so they're in fear for their lives. 
They're scared, and so they go, they're together to encourage one another, but they're praying in a locked room, and Jesus walks through the wall and shows up, and he, he points out his wounds to identify, yes, this is me, and I'm alive, I'm not dead. And then after he gets done, and they're, they're, they, they're like, okay, this is Jesus. You remember our names, we remember you. And then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he does something odd that if I did to you, you'd be like, that's weird. It says he breathed on them. Now, if I breathed on you, all you would get is bad coffee breath. You'd be insulted, like, don't breathe on me. And on top of that, where's your mask, right? But what he was doing is he was breathing into them, just like in Genesis 2, verse 7. He breathed into them the breath of life. Now, the disciples are already breathing at this point. They don't need to be turned from dust into a living creature. He's breathing into them new life. He's breathing into them the Holy Spirit. He's breathing into him the only potential to give them victory over sin and death. He's making them spiritually alive. He's, he says, receive what? Not bad breath. Receive ye the Holy Spirit, because Jesus spoke in King James. Receive ye. Receive the Holy Spirit, disciples. And when, it, when they received the Holy Spirit, it says that there were tongues of fire and a wind of God that went through the place, and they praised God. There was this new life-giving force that was overtaking the room, and they celebrated. Now think about that. This same life force was given to them, and then in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, it says that Peter standing up, now no longer afraid and in an upper room, he's standing before 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover when Jesus was murdered on the cross. And the first fruits of the Spirit is poured out upon that crowd in Acts chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus gave them the Holy Spirit, and then they were filled specifically at this moment with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other languages and tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, and because of that, God opened the ears of the hearers to hear every one of them speak in their own language the message of Jesus Christ and salvation. And this exploded into a new life for the church. This is the birth of the church. And so, God breathed. Now, if you fast forward to 2 Timothy in chapter 3 and verse 16, this is the same phrase that Paul tells to Timothy to explain the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. The phrase there in verse 16, Paul writes to Timothy, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable. It's useful for teaching, for doctrine, for correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God, meaning mankind, man and woman of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So scripture, all scripture, is given by inspiration of God, and that word there means to be God-breathed. It's God-inspired. It's God-potent. It's dynamite waiting to happen when it's unleashed in the life of a faithful, obedient recipient. So the Word of God spoken, faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. The Word of God inspired by the Spirit, spoken in the Spirit by disciples of God, is then unleashed in the life of the one that's filled with the Spirit, given ears to hear. Jesus said over and over, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. 
So every time we open the Bible, the Word of God is living and active, and it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. You don't need me to teach it to you. You've been given the Holy Spirit to have the breath of God, not coffee breath from your spouse, not the dragon breath of your children. Have you smelled the dragon breath of children in the morning? What in the world is that smell? I love my daughter, but good grief. I remember the first time that that happened. I'm trying to reel you back in with a funny story, but I mean, your kids get up and you're like, oh, my kids. And then you're like, whoa, my kids. I love you, but go brush your teeth. I haven't eaten yet. I don't care. I don't care if you can't taste your tasty-o's. I can't do it. Mine's probably worse than theirs is, but not from my nose perspective. Anyway, um, but every time that we open up the Word of God, the God of the Word is longing to do just what he did for Adam here, to breathe into you, not to force into you, by the way. He longs to breathe into you. You, you want to talk about a ventilator being life-giving. The Word of God does way better than any ventilator because when the ventilator and the power goes out and it doesn't work anymore and you have the Word of God in you and you believe in the Word that was from the beginning, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. When you have that breath of life in you, then when the ventilator fails, guess what? You live forever forever, forever, like Sandlot, you know, forever. And so all that to say, men of God, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, no scripture is of any private interpretation, but all scripture is inspired by, all prophecy is inspired by, as, as men of God, we're inspired by the wind of God or the, the pneuma, the breath of God, to speak the word of God. That's what this Bible is. It's not just people that spoke. It's God speaking through people. And so verse 18. Sorry, I got a little excited about that piece. Verse 8. Not 18, but 8. He goes on to say, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, in the midst of the garden, the tree of life was there and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon, probably butchering that. It's the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hittikai or Hittikel. It is the one where, when, the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. And so Adam becomes God's caretaker in this garden. He, he creates this garden, this, this place for Adam to flourish and to tend the garden. But if you look at the word to tend the garden there in verse 15, there's a, a feminine, a passive, and then there's a masculine tense. Well, here it's the feminine version of this word, and it doesn't mean that he toiled or labored. It meant that he was to worship and tend. He was to take care of it, to be a steward of it. He wasn't to create it. He wasn't to fight it. He was no longer to, he didn't have to weed it. The curse hasn't been spoken yet. After the fall, part of the curse is that you're going to grow and toil and make your food out of the ground and the sweat of your brow. And you're going to fight the weeds and the briars. But before that, all he had to do was go in there and pick the fruit and eat it and worship and obey the command of God. The command of God, interact with God, but the command was really, that was already understood. They were interacting with God in the garden. But the command was to be fruitful and multiply and master and manage the creation. And so that was all worship. By the way, do you know that in the Christian life, God's restored that 
what you do and toil and labor in every day is actually worship to God if you do it the right way. It's not toil to provide food. God provides your food, but he gives you things to do to glorify him in the way that you do it. And so all that to say he's the caretaker and there's plenty of food already there. But there's two trees. The tree of life is there and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then there's also the source of four rivers that flow from within Eden. But I also want you to notice that there's more than just inside Eden. And we'll see that in chapter 3. So verse 15, he goes on to give instruction to Adam. He says, Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden, to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now, we don't notice what we're free to do oftentimes as human beings. We only notice what we're told not to do. One of my kids' first words was no, because they heard it so much. But God did not say, don't do this. He said, you're free to do all of this, and here's one thing that you're limited from. And as human nature is to notice what we're told not to do. And as Americans, we definitely don't like to be told what not to do. But God told Adam, of all these trees and their fruit, you may freely eat, but of this one tree, you may not. Um, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no, not found a helper comparable to him. So I believe that this was actually an exercise for Adam. God knew what Adam needed before Adam needed it, by the way. God noticed before Adam did, it's not good that he should be alone. Now, was he alone? No, God was there. And so were the animals. But he was revealing to Adam, there's something that you need that you don't even know about yet. So Adam, as he's naming the animals, there's two things going on. Number one, what are the animals formed out of? Dust. What's Adam formed out of? Dust. What's different between Adam and the animals? The breath of life. See, we equate animals and plants to being just as important as people. God said, you are different than them. So Adam notices as he's naming these animals, there's none of them that's really like me. They don't have personality, although they kind of have the inklings of personalities. They're all different. They get to know you. You know, dogs seem to be pretty human-like in some fashion. In another fashion, when they eat their vomit and poop, you're like, okay, that's not, they don't really, uh, you know, let, and then, then we let them lick our faces, but that's just another thought. But anyway, um, animals are not like human beings. They, they don't have the breath of life. That's what makes them different. That's why we care more about human lives than we do animal lives, hopefully, as Christians. And so, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, we are God's penultimate creation because we have the breath of God and we are created in His image. And so as he's naming all these animals, what he notices is, there's nobody like me. There's nobody comparable to me. There's no one with the same qualities as me. Not just that they didn't look the same, but they didn't fulfill Adam. And so his need for fellowship was a very early on thing that he noticed. And so God, in his wisdom, says, for Adam, there was not found a helper, helper comparable to him. So as he goes through this exercise, he notices the same thing that God did. It's not good that he should be alone. So I want you to notice when Adam is limited from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, who's not there? Eve. She's not there. And, and apparently Adam is supposed to lead his family from the very earliest stages. He's supposed to take what God has already revealed to him about life in the garden and pass it on to his wife. He's supposed to teach his wife things, his wife things. Men, get to know the Lord 
and teach your wives about the Lord. We are supposed to lead in that. And don't feel ashamed if you haven't. Start today. And if you don't know something to teach your wife about the Lord or the women in your life about the Lord, then may that be something that encourages you to dig deeper. Don't, don't live in condemnation and go, okay, I need to go draw from the well. I need to go find out. Lord, tell me something. Though, so I got to teach my family something about you. So he's not there. She's not there during that. But he says the consequence is if you eat of it, you will die. Notice that God doesn't tell Adam, if you eat of that tree, I'm going to kill you. If you don't follow the rules, I'm going to kill you. He says a consequence of you eating from that tree is you will die. And so God warns Adam. But notice that Adam's relationship with God is based on him hearing him. The word of God, what God speaks to him, is how his relationship begins. And his relationship continues in heeding the word that God gives him. And so I think I got ahead of myself. But as we go to verse 21, he goes on to the, the next creation except he's going to create Eve. Verse 21, And the Lord God, after noticing that there was no helper comparable to him, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. Now the word there for rib, we could thumb wrestle over. It's not literally a, li a rib, but it's a chunk out of Adam. So wives, if you've ever looked at your husband and said, my husband's not all there. He's not. You're right. Uh, you're there. Uh, and, and wives in the same way, you know, or husbands, if you've ever looked at your wife, you're like, man, there's something missing from there. She's not right. Well, that's because there's a piece missing. It's you. That's why you see all the things that she's lacking, and she sees all the things that you're lacking. You need one another. That's why God created marriage. Um, but all that to say that as the as he creates her out of his side, verse 22, the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said this. Now remember, he's been looking for somebody comparable to him in the animals and noticed that none of them measured up. And then God brings the woman to Adam from his own body and says, this is now bone of my bones. And flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam sees the woman and says, whoa, man. <laughs> Come on, dad joke. But all that to say, he looks at her and basically says, wow, this makes sense. This person I can relate to, this person I can relate with. And therefore, verse 24 a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And in this relationship, verse 25 says, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now, as a young man, I was like, "Woo, yeah, naked. But as I grow in this understanding, it's not about physical nakedness. It's about that they were vulnerable to one another. They were exposed to one another. As a young man, of course, you can all, you know, men know this, but like all, that's all guys think about. That's how God wired us. Physically, we think about that. But what he's saying here is that they were naked before each other spiritually and practically. They shared with one another. They were vulnerable in ways that you should never be vulnerable with any other human being. Married people. The people at work that you interact with are there to work with. Here's how divorce happens. It doesn't start with, um, you know, uh, a man going, I'm going to go cheat on my wife. It starts with sharing vulnerable things with someone else's spouse or with someone that's not married to you or your secretary at work or a coworker that just gets you more than your wife does or a coworker that just gets you and actually listens to you like your husband won't. Husbands, listen to your wives, or they will talk to someone else about you. And then down the road, you'll be like, where, why did she cheat on me? That's where it started. We're there for one another, to be vulnerable with one another, 
to expose ourselves to one another more than physically. That's how God made it. That's how he designed it. That's how it works best. And I have a quote for you about uh, marriage, by the way. Woman was not made out of Adam's head to rule over him. Nor was she made out of his feet to be trampled upon by him. But out of his side to be equal with him and under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart to be beloved by him. Men, we only have so much capacity to listen. At least that's what I tell my wife and I believe that to be true. We can only take in so much. So if you don't have enough left to listen to your wife, then shut off everything else until you do. Listen to your wives. They're telling you what they need. They may not be using words. They might be really subtle. But listen to your wives. They're talking to you. That's how they experience intimacy. So all that to say, woman means out of man. And I believe this to be a physical thing. God took, he didn't form woman out of dust. There's a cult out there that teaches that women, men was formed out of the dust and so was woman. And that's why there's this separation and this we don't need each other. That's not biblical. That's not Christianity. But therefore, he says, man shall leave his most important relationships. A man shall leave his family and cleave to his wife. And so if you're having, by the way, a lot of relationship troubles begin at early marriage because man or woman won't leave their family in some ways that are uncomfortable. That's the most important relationship. But to sever that tie in some ways, to be in this new season of life, to cleave to your wife. But then two become one exclusively, not just physically, but spiritually as well. And they depend on and serve one another. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll read it real quick. Galatians, Ephesians 5. It's going to say there in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands. Put yourself under their authority as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is under submission to Christ, so let the wives be their own husband, be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. How should I love my wife? Just as Christ also loved the church and sacrificed himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present him, her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies because they are of your own body. He says, no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, Paul writes, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ. And so all that to say, God designed marriage. He performed the first surgery to create it. And so they depend on one another. Biblical marriage started in the Old Testament. And so, all that to say, let's zoom out for just a minute. Genesis is a foundational book for our faith. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we see all the basic Christian doctrines are laid out. Genesis is a literal book. God, who created the heavens and the earth. God, who created the creatures on the earth. God, who created Adam and Eve. And then God will take Adam and Eve and draw a direct line from Adam and Eve to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, all the way through to Jesus, through King David. So he multiplies Adam and Eve, and he'll reveal himself to and make himself known to the world through a chosen people that came from Adam and Eve. Abraham and his descendants after him 
They'll worship the same God. It's the same God. And yet what we'll see is as time goes on, man will corruptly go back to try and worship creation instead of the creator. But it was not so in the beginning. God created man. God created relationship. God created marriage to be between a man and a woman so that they could fulfill the commandment to multiply. And yet what's going to happen is that though they were created with relationship for relationship with God, God didn't break the relationship man does. And they rejected this simplicity. Think about this. How many of you like sitting in the cool of the morning, enjoying a little cup of coffee, a little time in the word, simplicity, nothing's happened for that. You haven't seen any emails, you got any text messages, nobody's screaming, the kids are still asleep. And, and you're just sitting there in the cool of the morning, fellowshipping with God. That's the garden. Except after that, there was no emails coming. And then what we did was we said, there's got to be something greater. And Satan came in and said, hey, don't you know God's withholding something from you? And so we took the bait. The hook dropped right in front of us, got the little worm on there. Maybe the worm's not there. Maybe the worm's not a good analogy, right? Because none of us are eating a stinking worm. I mean, Bear grills, he might eat a worm. He might eat a snake. I watched him do that the other day. That was creepy. Uh, but, but what is it for you? What, what's, what's on the hook for you? Is it success? Is it the next position? Is it the next vehicle? Is it the next relationship? Is it when I get here, I'll be content? Satan will drop whatever your weakness is in front of you in order to make you feel like God's withholding something from me. And if I just reject this one little command and go grab, there's a hook, and the hook will put you in slavery. And then from that point on, that's what happened to Adam and Eve. They, they took the hook, they believed the lie, and from that point on, here we are. We have to labor to the point of exhaustion, and we're looking forward to a kingdom where there will be rest for our souls. But until then, we have rest for our souls. Hebrews chapter 3 says it. Hebrews chapter 3. Chapter 4, rather. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering in his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of that rest. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit those who went before us, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do not enter that rest, as he said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day. We talked about it today. The seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place they shall not enter my rest because of unbelief. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in King David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, when they entered the promised land, that he would not have afterward spoken of another day. Therefore, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And so we look forward to that rest. Father, I don't understand all of this, but I do understand one thing. That as we studied Revelation, you pointed forward to a thousand year millennial kingdom where there would be rest from labor, where we would be in complete subjection to your son, Jesus. And uh, your word says that a day is a thousand days to you, and a thousand years is as a day, and yet uh, we look forward to this day of rest, that it will be restored to what it was in the garden. But we live in a fallen world. And so, Lord, today, help us not to harden our hearts against your instruction and in righteousness and your commands. 
but help us to obtain them, to receive them, to hear them, to believe them, and to walk by faith in them so that we can experience rest for our souls, the rest that Jesus has provided. And so, Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for Genesis. We thank you for salvation in Jesus alone. And we thank you that there's coming a day where we can rest from our labors. But until then, help us to take the faith that it takes to rest weekly, to take advantage of the Sabbath day of rest, not because our salvation depends upon it, but because we practice it by faith, looking forward to the day that we will cease from labor, be on the day of blessing, and that you'll set us apart to just be with you in the midst of the garden. So Lord, thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.